The Bermuda Triangle is a mysterious area of the Atlantic Ocean which lies between Miami, Bermuda, and Puerto Rico. In its waters, aircraft and watercraft have inexplicably vanished. Some folks attribute the strange phenomena to paranormal activity, even the devil and his demons. It's provoked great speculation. But there's another triangular set of coordinates that for a few years saw more paranormal activity than any place on the planet at any time. And the cause can be traced to a definitive source. During the first half of the first century, on the northern shore of Israel's Sea of Galilee, paranormal and supernatural phenomena occurred with great regularity. Storms ceased. A sack lunch of fish and chips was multiplied to feed 15,000 hungry people. A surfer was seen on top of the water without a surfboard. (laughs) Lame legs began to walk and leap. Even a little girl was raised from the dead. Call it the gospel triangle. In the area between three cities, a mere three miles apart, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, saw more supernatural activity than any other place at any other time. Here Jesus did the lion's share of his miracles. The Nelson's Bible Dictionary estimates that 18 of Jesus' 33 recorded miracles, a whopping 55% was performed in this small area. Well, this morning we're headed into the Gospel Triangle, where Jesus of Nazareth worked miracles to prove clearly and conclusively that he was God come to earth. Chapter 6 begins. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, the sea is actually a, lar- a, a freshwater lake. It's a large freshwater lake in northern Israel. It's in the northeast corner of the country. The lake is 13 miles long by 8 miles wide. In the early first century, A flourishing and popular city grew up on the western shore of the lake. The Romans named it after their emperor, Tiberius. This led some folks to refer to the lake as the Sea of Tiberius. And yet the Romans had no regard for Jewish custom, and thus they built Tiberius over a Jewish graveyard. Few Jews, therefore, lived in the city in Jesus' day. There's no mention, in fact, in the Gospels of Jesus ever visiting Tiberius, He and his men spent most of their time in Jewish territory, the North Shore. Verse 2, but then a great multitude followed Jesus. And why? Because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now often Jesus retreated to escape the crowds. To get alone with his men. Luke chapter 9 verse 10 says that the miracle that follows occurred in a deserted place belonging to the city of Bethsaida. The word Bethsaida means house of fishing. Bethsaida was a fishing village. The problem with locating it though is that there may have been two Bethsaidas. Today the ruins of Bethsaida have been found on a hill or tail east of where the Jordan feeds into the lake, three miles from Capernaum. Whereas the traditional site of the feeding of the 5,000 is south of Capernaum, 
It's a location known in Arabic as Tabga, or the Seven Springs. Tabga was built over warm water that fed into the lake and made a good fishing bed in that spot. Here the mountains sloped down to the lake. Some scholars think there was a second Bethsaida, both on the north shore there in the Gospel Triangle. Well, the story continues. Now, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. This puts this occasion in early spring. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, so much for escaping the crowd. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? John chapter 1 verse 44 tells us that Philip was from Bethsaida. He knew the area. And thus Jesus is asking him, where's the nearest grocery store, Philip? Do you know? But this Jesus said to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Now remember, Philip was the pragmatic disciple. He whips out his calculator app. And he figures what it's going to take to feed a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and kids. He comes up with the number 200 denarii. That is quite a large sum, our equivalent around $40,000. But there was one key factor that Philip had left out of his equation, and that was Jesus. Please don't leave Jesus out of your factoring and your deciphering. The disciples are about to learn that no matter how little you have or how much you lack, if you've got Jesus, you always have more than enough. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Hey, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Three times in the gospel we see Andrew, and on each occasion he's bringing somebody to Jesus. That's why we all need to be an Andrew. Other than Jesus' own resurrection, this miracle of multiplication is the only miracle recorded in all four of our Gospels. The disciples obviously saw it as a unique event, even among the miracles. You know, later the winds and the waves will obey Jesus, but here he commands the electrons and the protons Jesus manipulates the atomic structure of the loaves and the fish. It's a molecular miracle. It's on a nuclear level. And here John gives us a couple of insights that we don't get from the other Gospels. The Greek word he uses for fish, apsarion, it means little fish. You can go to the Sea of Galilee today and you'll find that it's full of little bite-sized minnows swimming up near the shore. The two fish that apparently fed the 5,000, they were more like sardines, just little minnows. John also tells us that the boys' loaves were made of barley, not wheat. Barley was the poor man's bread. In other words, this was a skimpy lunch. This was a kid's meal. I mean, it was more like a snack, cheap bread and a couple of sardines. Verse 10, then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Now, Jesus gets organized in anticipation of a miracle. And I think this is a great definition for faith. Think of faith 
as a willingness to organize around a not yet fulfilled promise of God. Hey, we show our faith that it'll rain when we take an umbrella with us. Faith is acting, organizing around what we believe God will do. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. A miracle had occurred. A kid's meal feeds 5,000 men plus families. Add kids and, ch- uh, kids and wives, maybe 15,000 people in all. And notice Jesus didn't just provide all that was needed. He provided as much as they wanted. The crowd could go back for seconds. When Jesus blesses, there's always more than enough to go around. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. And I love the lesson here. Jesus never wastes a miracle. And neither should we. You know, John's gospel reveals that all Jesus' miracles taught spiritual truths. His miracles always carried a message. And it's as true today as it was then. Whenever God works in our lives, he's teaching us something about himself. Pay attention. Don't waste a miracle. Verse 13. Therefore, they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Perhaps the 12 baskets of leftovers were for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. I I like to think that maybe they were for each of Jesus' 12 doubting disciples. Either way, here's the point. There's more than enough when God is at work. Hey, like this little boy, we should bring our skimpiness to Jesus and let him transform it with his abundance. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. This chapter is going to describe the conflict between Jesus and the crowd. See, Jesus didn't trust the crowd's motives. The Jews saw his supernatural power, and they hoped that they could harness it to their political ambitions. Here they want to crown him king. Jesus, he knows the only crown that he will wear at this point is a crown of thorns. He followed the Father's will, not the whims of the crowd. And so now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. Now this would have been a very short trip. From Tobgut to Capernaum, or even from Bethsaida to Capernaum, it's just a mile or two. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Now, topographically, the Sea of Galilee sits in the bottom of a bowl. The Lebanese mountains are to the north. The Golan Heights are north and east. The hills of the upper and lower Galilee are west. The lake is at the bottom of a funnel, 680 feet below sea level. 
And there are times when the cold north wind will swoop down on top of the warm surface of the lake. When that happens, violent storms erupt. This is what victimized the disciples. Their little skip across the lake became a fight for their lives. We're told, verse 19, so when they had rowed about three or four miles, see, they're way off course now. Mark 6, verse 47 tells us they were in the middle of the sea. What should have been a few minutes of smooth sailing had now turned into hours of storm fighting. The other gospels say that they fought the tempest for close to eight hours. And it's in the midst of this tug of war with the violent storm that the disciples look up and they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. John ends verse 19 with an understatement. The disciples were afraid. (laughs) I imagine so. The sudden storm and now the surprise surfer both scared them. They're rubbing their eyes. They can't believe what we're seeing. See, previously they had been thrilled by a miracle. Now they're being tested by a storm. And you know God does both in our lives? And frequently, I might add, he thrills us and then he tests us. But Jesus said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. And notice Jesus didn't say anything about the storm. He didn't say anything about how or when or even if he planned to quell the storm. Jesus simply says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Apparently, he expected his presence alone to be enough to vanquish their fears. Notice Jesus cares more about calming the storm in the disciples than he does the storm on the sea. Then they willingly received him into the boat. I'm sure they did. They now know that Jesus can handle any situation. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. This is another, you know, underappreciated miracle. One moment the disciples are floundering in the middle of the lake. The next moment they've reached the other shore. They cover four miles instantly. Verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats. And came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. This all had created questions. Several boats had sailed into Bethsaida, but only one had sailed out, the disciples' boat. And everyone knew that Jesus was not on board. And so now the word gets out. Jesus is in Capernaum. How in the world did he get there? Verse 25, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They come to Jesus asking about his movements, but what concerns Jesus are their motives. For Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now notice Jesus refers to his miracles as signs. And remember, this is true of all God's wonders. 
When God works a miracle of healing, his goal isn't just to remove human suffering. If that were the case, why doesn't he heal all sick people, even abolish death for that matter? No, the truth is, when God works a miracle, he's doing something out of the ordinary. He's interrupting the natural order to get our attention and to teach us a lesson. In feeding the masses, Jesus wasn't providing us a perpetual meal ticket. He was showing us who he is, that he's all-sufficient, that he's Lord of every situation. Realize Rome's formula for ruling the masses was bread and circuses. Just feed and entertain the people and they'll be loyal. Did you know that Rome had set aside 93 days annually and funded them as public holidays? Now the crowd that flocked to Jesus wanted to know what bread and circuses does Jesus offer? Hey, Jesus, what can you do for us? Even today, many people profess Jesus, not because of who he is, but for what they can get out of him. Well, Jesus addresses this mentality. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has sent his seal on him. See, the loaves and the fish, he says, were never the point. The miracle was just a sign. Jesus filled their stomachs to show that he could fill their soul. But they had missed the message. The crowd hungered for perishables, for food and fun that's here today and gone tomorrow. Temporary stuff rather than the deeper, richer, more spiritual life. And sadly, there are people today who still have this bread and circus mentality. They long for what perishes, for momentary thrills and gratification. Oh, they'll serve God as long as he serves them and their interests. Jesus is treated like a meal ticket rather than the Lord of glory. And his word today is the same as then. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Well, then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And every cult and false religion has its own answer to that question. Islam says, if you want to work the works of God, fast the month of Ramadan, pilgrimage to Mecca. Hinduism says, torture your body and push your physical endurance. Judaism says, keep the law and the traditions of our elders. Mormonism instructs us to follow Joseph Smith, decaffeinate, do a mission. Roman Catholicism says, do penance, make confession, attend mass. But how does Jesus answer that question? You need to know. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? God's sole requirement is this. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Friends, pleasing God is simple. Believe in Jesus. That's the work that God wants you to do. Believe in him. See, all religions break down into two categories. On the one hand, you've got religions that expect you to do good or to be good. You atone for your sin 
through your religious works or your charitable deeds or your moral behavior. And every religion but one fits into that category. But there is a second category. It's Christianity. And in Christianity, it claims that God is so holy that there's nothing that we can do to please him. We can never do enough. And yet, because he loves us, he has atoned for our sin. He has covered our guilt through the work and effects of his own son, Jesus. Now, the only work left for us to do is to trust in the sufficiency of his son. As Jesus tells us, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Verse 30, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform them? Perform then that we may see it and believe you. What work will you do? Notice they still want a sign. I mean, what had he done the day before with the fish and ships? They didn't need more evidence. They just wanted additional thrills. And Jesus ain't going to play that game. He answered them. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You know, the rabbis taught that like Moses, when Messiah came, he would cause manna to fall from heaven. Well, Jesus plays on that. Then he said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The true bread, the sustenance that satisfies the soul, wasn't the manna, but a man. Manna fed Israel in the desert. But the man, Christ Jesus, feeds all people in all times. Jesus alone can meet our spiritual hunger. Verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. In ancient Israel, bread was not just one of the four major food groups. It was really the main food. It was the main food group. In antiquity and even throughout the Middle East today, bread is the sustenance of life. It's the main staple in a person's diet. And so when Jesus referred to himself as the bread of life, it would be like saying, I am the protein of life or I am the vitamin of life. Jesus contains all the USDA daily requirements you might need for spiritual health and well-being, trust me. He alone can satisfy our deepest hunger. Jesus is the true soul food. He's the bread of life. And I ask you, are you bread fed? Is this where you're feeding? Is this where you're going for your sustenance? You know, I once read a survey that said people who grow grocery shopping without eating beforehand, if you go grocery shopping hungry, you'll spend $29 more on your food. That's right. Whereas if you eat dinner before you go grocery shopping, you'll spend $37 less. Hey, it proves that when your stomach is full, you're less vulnerable to impulse buying. And so it is with the heart that feeds on the bread of life. 
Once Jesus satiates your hunger and slakes your thirst, temptations lose their appeal. When you're bread fed, there's a deep down abiding satisfaction. Jesus continues speaking here in verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, as we noted in chapter 3, this idea of Jesus coming down from heaven was a claim to his deity. Humans don't pre-exist. Your life didn't start until you were conceived. But Jesus came down from heaven. He pre-existed before his birth. Indeed, Jesus was God. And yet here he tells us he came to serve. Jesus said he came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And boy, we should have that same attitude, shouldn't we? He goes on. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And here's a verse that teaches a doctrine that we call predestination. Notice here, Christians are defined by Jesus as all the Father has given me. The idea is that God chose you in advance. He predestined those who would be saved and gave them as gifts to his Son. But note the next verse teaches the opposite doctrine, man's free will. For this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Here Christians are those who believe in God's Son. In other words, they choose to believe. So which is it? Does God choose us or do we choose God? Interestingly, here in back-to-back verses, Jesus teaches God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And, oh, (laughs) who's calling in? And, listen, he teaches God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and he makes no attempt to reconcile the two. He takes them both at face value. And this is how all the Bible treats these two subjects. It teaches both. Jesus knew that in God's infinite wisdom, what appears to us as a contradiction is actually a carefully choreographed partnership. Apparently, even though it might baffle us, it's still true. Everyone God chose, chooses God. And everyone who chooses God was chosen by God. How can that be? I don't know. But it's what the Bible teaches over and over and over again. And I think it's what we need to take by faith. Once a man asked famed preacher C.H. Spurgeon how he could reconcile what the Bible teaches. It teaches both predestination and free will. How can you reconcile this? Spurgeon replied, I never try to reconcile friends. Verse 41, 
The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. (laughs) Notice they complained about Jesus. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? I mean, they clearly recognized Jesus was claiming to be God. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Three times now Jesus has spoken of the resurrection of our bodies. Evidently, in the mind of our Lord, our salvation isn't complete until the day our decaying bodies are made brand new. You know, ultimately, God's salvation will redeem everything that sin has touched. It's comprehensive. And sin's impact on our lives is pretty far-reaching, I would say. Yes, it's severed our relationship with God, but it's done far more. There's a whole litany of sin's fallout. I mean, think of what sin has created. Natural disasters, aging and death, hostility between man and the animals, disease and sickness. We could go on and on and on. But Christianity will eventually cure all these ills. The salvation that Jesus brings will put an end to all sin's destructive consequences. Jesus' work climaxes on the day when he raises our dead bodies from the grave. And then he continues, verse 45, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Here he quotes Isaiah 54, verse 13. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And then he says in verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. What a claim. I had an uncle who served in World War II. He served in the Navy. And he played baseball on the service team with the famed Yankee slugger Joe DiMaggio. And as a kid, I always saw my uncle as somebody special simply because he had been on the same baseball field with Jolt and Joe. But imagine the disciples now reflecting on verse 46. They had lived with the man who had actually seen the Father in heaven. No earthling had seen the Almighty, yet the disciples had lived with God's only earthly eyewitness, his son Jesus, who tells them, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. It says it again. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus compares himself to the manna that God fed the Israelites in the wilderness. You remember the story. Every day for 40 years, God supplied a miracle. Mysterious food. This wafer would appear on the ground, and it sustained the people physically. Manna was good for the body, yet those who ate the miracle manna eventually died. Apparently, Moses' bread didn't supply eternal life. In contrast, Jesus says that anyone who eats of his bread or believes in him will live forever. Jesus is eternal fuel. 
feed on him, he guarantees us eternal life. And it turns out the manna's primary purpose was to depict Jesus. It did so in at least six ways. First, it was a mystery. The word manna means, what is it? Jesus was also a mystery to the Jews. Second, the manna came at night. Jesus came in the darkness of man's sin. Third, manna was small, which speaks of Christ's humility. Fourth, it was round, which speaks of his eternal nature. Fifth, it was white, which speaks of his purity. Sixth, the manna was sweet to the taste. That also describes Jesus. In essence, manna was the ultimate appetizer. It was supposed to whet Israel's appetite for the main entree that would follow, the bread of life, Jesus the Messiah. Well, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now again, this was the same problem that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman and with Rabbi Nicodemus. He had spoken of living water. He had spoken of being born again. Jesus was speaking figuratively in these situations, but the people were taking him literally. And that's what's happening here. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in him. Now, obviously, Jesus wasn't advocating cannibalism. I mean, eating human flesh and drinking human blood were prohibited in God's law. Once more, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. To eat and to drink is the spiritual equivalent of faith. Eating and drinking like faith are simple, natural acts. A child enters the world with the innate ability to do both. These aren't skills that they have to learn. And likewise, we're all born into this world with the ability to have faith. Hey, everybody trusts and believes in somebody or something. And thus to eat his flesh and drink his blood is the equivalent of leaning into him by faith. It's sad that when it comes to communion, Roman Catholicism makes the same mistake as Nicodemus, as the woman at the well, as these Jews here. Catholics take the words of Jesus, words that Jesus meant figuratively, and they think of them literally. Their concept of communion, or what they call transubstantiation, says that when the wine and the bread are blessed by the priest, they literally and materially become the body and blood of our Lord. That kind of wooden literalism is not what Jesus meant when he told them to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He was speaking spiritually, metaphorically. Verse 54, for whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. The idea is that just as your body metabolizes natural foods, your spirit is what connects with Jesus and draws strength from him. Spiritual metabolism comes through faith. He says, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Eating and drinking to the material world is what believing and receiving are to the spiritual world. You follow that? 
realized Jesus saw faith as spiritual consumption. Faith is more than an intellectual intellectual assent. It's more to just an agreement with a set of facts. No, faith assimilates. Faith chews on the work and promises of Jesus so that it becomes a part of you. And when I treat the promises of Jesus as if they apply to me, I suddenly partake of their power. In a spiritual sense, faith is eating and drinking. It's consuming. It's metabolizing the things of God. It's been said, you are what you eat. Your body digests and metabolizes whatever food you feed it. And thus, a healthier diet produces a healthier body. And this is also true spiritually. Faith does for the spirit what eating does for the body. It digests and consumes and metabolizes what it's being fed. As Jesus said, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. If you want to be spiritually healthy, you need to be bread fed. You need to feed on Jesus. Jesus tells us, this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What an amazing exchange here. Jesus has been challenging them to be more spiritual, to think more spiritual, to see life from an eternal perspective. But they complain because they say he's just being difficult. You know, at every turn, the disciples want Jesus to make their way easier, not harder. And friends, if that's your mentality, it won't take long before Jesus offends you. For he still wants to challenge his disciples. He wants to challenge us, not coddle us. He's going to make things hard from time to time. His demands make things hard from time to time. Verse 62. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Jesus is asking them, would it be easier for you to believe I came down from heaven if you saw me go back to heaven? They'll actually get that opportunity after his resurrection. But in the meantime, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. They're not literal. They're spiritual. When he spoke of eating and drinking his flesh, feeding on him, Jesus was referring to spiritual digestion, not physical digestion. He wasn't concerned as much with their digestive track as he was that they were on the right spiritual track. And then in verse 64, Jesus makes a jarring statement to the crowd that had followed him. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And Jesus said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. This was the turning point. Here, Jesus started to thin out the crowd. 
his hard sayings had turned away the ambulance chasers and the thrill seekers. The bread and circus crowd had gone home. Here in John 6, Jesus begins to separate the pretenders from the contenders. Verse 67 is a moment of decision for Jesus' closest men. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? They could have. But I love Peter's response. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I'm sure Peter didn't understand all Jesus had said, but he had seen enough to know that Jesus had the goods. He had come down from heaven. Jesus had claimed to be God, and everything about him had backed up that claim. Peter was sure. You know, at times, all believers feel like Peter. Following Jesus is stretching at times. It's challenging always. On occasion, it's even unsettling. But once you conclude that Jesus is from heaven, that he is the Christ, that he is the truth, where else can you go? Like Peter, we say, you have the words of eternal life. And then chapter 6 closes. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Seeds of betrayal must have been sowed here. And though Judas stayed around, he stopped believing, which proves Not everyone in the crowd was a true believer. Did you hear that? Not everyone in the crowd was a true believer. In chapter 6, Jesus has miraculously fed the crowd. But they cared only for the bread that fills their bellies, what they could get from him. That's when he challenged them with who he is. The bread that fills the soul. And yet the crowd leaves him. And he wonders if his disciples will too. In fact, Jesus still wonders. He wonders about you. Will you leave Jesus when it dawns on you that he doesn't always do what you'd like for him to do? Or have you concluded with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Well, Father, we want to sit on that for a moment and ask our own hearts that question. Lord, there are times when it gets hard to follow you. Lord, we deceive ourselves at times into thinking that it's going to be easy When it's not, when you've promised us trials and difficulties, that you want us to grow, you want us to move forward, you want our lives to count for you even in this dark world and there are times when it does get hard and we are stretched 
And it does become difficult, and we are challenged, and we might even be offended by some of the commands that you give us. And Lord, we need to ask ourselves if we're going to continue to follow. Are we going to trust you? Are we going to pursue you even when it's hard? And Lord, we stop and think and we realize where would we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. You alone can feed our deepest needs. You alone have guaranteed us a life in heaven, redemption from our sin. You alone are going to make right all that sin has spoiled. Where would we go? Nowhere, Lord. You alone are the bread of life. And so we thank you. And we recommit ourselves to you this morning. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us in this place today. And Lord, we're not afraid. If you're thinning out the crowd, so be it. But Lord, we want to be among those. We want to be among those who reaffirm their faith and say to you, yes, Lord Jesus, we believe in you and we trust you, come what may. Lord, please work in our hearts this morning. Make us more like you, Lord Jesus. Help us to do our Father's will, not our own. Work in our hearts this morning. We pray it and ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, hey, let's all stand.